Thank you for the reading of Psalm 13. Nate Hale serves as the student minister just down the street at Madison Church of Christ. Uh, and he's a gifted student minister. He's an, awesome, he's an awesome guy in general with his own story. And he's also a fantastic and gifted musician. And if you've never heard his rendition of Psalm 13, do yourself a favor. Don't do it right now. Do yourself a favor. Go download it immediately and, and listen to it just on repeat today. Uh, it's a powerful song, powerful psalm in general, but Nate does a great job with it. It's good to be with you. Uh, pray with me. Father God, eternal God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Thank you for your presence in the midst of our suffering and our pain. Thank you for being here with us in this very moment. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. We hope that this new series encourages and informs and helps shape our faith journeys uh, as individuals, but also as a community of people who are moving through this life. And so uh, let me begin by doing this. If you are a kid, and sorry about this, seniors and down, I'm going to call you kids for a second. Is that okay? Kids? Okay. If you're a senior and down and you're in this room, would you please stand up? If you're a kid, senior and down, senior high school and down, yeah, all the kids, I know some of them are out of here. Yeah, I know some of you are like, I'm not a kid anymore. You're a kid. It's okay. Just a kid. Just, just stay with me for a moment, kids. <laughs> Mr. John, me, I'm going to talk about some pretty hard things this morning. Okay? And I want you to hear two things. Of all the hard things I talk about today, I want you to hear over and over again that I'm saying God is with us. And God keeps his promises. Okay? Repeat after me. Those of you who are standing, who are kids, at, young adults and down, God is with us. Ooh, I, I, know y'all, I know I can hear a little bit louder than that. God is with us. Ah. Where is she? Praise team. One more time. God is with us. God keeps his promises. Yeah, sit down. Thank you. I love it. Life can be beautiful and life-giving and desolating all at the same time. And as Les highlighted last Sunday, it's often hard to make sense and endure the unexplainable and overwhelming tragedy and calamity and heartache that often comes crashing down, and, and there's not a moment. It's kind of hard not to use those words and not mention the word harsh. I don't know any kind of tragedy that's not harsh. But just as God makes beautiful things out of dust and out of chaos, as people who were created in His image, you and I are also invited into that storyline to help recreate, to help bring order to chaos, and to help, not that we have the same power to bring things out of dust, but that we have the human capacity to take the things that are negative around us and help turn them into something beautiful. Do you hear me? You have that capacity within you as a human being. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, 
keep that in mind that that is part of who you are. You have that ability and that invitation. And I don't know how else to say it. It's not just our, our fellowship, but we, have, we wrestle with mystery when it comes to God. I know it's not just us, but this process that we're talking about this morning is a mystery. And suffering and pain that does roll in and out from time to time. And here's what I want to say about that. When it happens, it elicits all kind or at least provokes all kinds of different responses from you and me. But at least it's going to elicit these two things. It's going to kindle your anger and it's going to kindle my anger and it's also going to summon protest. At some point in some time, you're going to experience anger and it's going to su- uh, summit protest. And then even as Tom was reading this morning, I don't know how this happens. You've been there, I'm sure. But through our weeping, and, and at times, I don't know in the last time you've done this, but when you've cried so much and you just, you're, just, you're just kind of um, wheezing and gasping for air, at some point when you're doing that, with whatever breath you have left in your lungs, you utter this question, and it is, why? Why? And it's this question that never goes away. Why? Why, Lord? We wonder why God doesn't intervene. We, we wonder why he allows the evil that takes place in this world. And we wonder why he doesn't just go ahead and eliminate all the suffering that's in the world. As a matter of fact, that's pretty normal. And if you were to pause and just think for a second that what is normal in this world, that in many parts of this world, suffering and pain are the norm of humans' everyday experience. From oppression to violence to poverty, to injustice, and what we want to do is we want to point our finger and blame it on someone or something. And then you and I, as human beings, we experience this planet, this universe, God's creation as fragile, groaning, suffering, and broken. And it's ravished with illness and disease and things like covid Tornadoes that we just recently experienced, all kind of natural disasters, wars, acts of violence, ridiculous, senseless shootings, accidents, terrorism, the list goes on and on and on. And we ask, where are you, God? Our friend John Mark Hicks likes to say, when are you going to get your hands out of your pockets and do something? Where are you, God, is a question that we ask. And then we ask this question, when will it end? Is it going to end? How much longer, Lord? And so if you think about Scripture in general, there's all kind of themes that, that go in and out Scripture. And there's, there's a lot of themes in Job, but Job, the book of Job, more than any other, explores the biblical book or the biblical concept of just suffering, if you would. But here's what's wild about this conversation. There is no answer to suffering in the book of Job. You and I receive no answer to the questions that we keep asking. Matter of fact, with all the dialogue, you just mentioned poetry, Garrett, with all the dialogue that takes place in the book of Job, God never answers or addresses the question, why? Not once. In fact, I don't think the book of Job tries to answer our questions or solve the issue of suffering or profound evil in the world. There is no explanation, explanation. but the one thing that it does do, this is where we want to really zero in today, is it talks about our speech. Your speech matters more than you could possibly imagine when it comes to suffering. And so you and I, we often experience disturbances and things that disorient us and 
I don't want to pause and just ask you to dwell on all those things right now. Those things are probably coming to your mind anyways. Um, but Job's sufferings are immense. They're intense. And they really do seem out of proportion, especially in this text. But then again, um, anybody who's experienced any kind of unjust suffering, don't we always think that? Like it's out of proportion? It's ridiculous. Why is this happening? Um, and so one of the things we see is that anybody who believes in a merciful and loving God, we struggle with this concept of suffering. Anybody. So what do we do? What do you do? How do you respond when you're angry? When your wrath is just seething within you? Um, and so when you think about um, all the things that we're capable of, how are we to speak to God in our anger? I don't know if you've thought about that recently. I don't even know if you grew up in a tradition that gave you permission to be angry. I don't know if you grew up in a faith tradition that said, not only that, you can be angry at God because of the things that are taking place in this world. And so for now, we're going to look at this, but we're going to look and zero in on this. How will Job speak to and of God in light of the unjust sufferings that he is walking through? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when we suffer, it feels like rejection. It feels like a denial of the love that we have come to know who God is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to slow down a little bit again. And we're going to be in this text. We're going to be in Job for just a couple more Sundays after this. But I want us to go back to the wager that was made with Job. And um, I want you to know that if you go, just go ahead and turn, open your Bibles if you've got them with you or whatever device that you have, go to Job chapter 1. And you can float through there as much as you need to. Um, one of the things that the author does is he grabs our attention really quickly to this guy, Job, and he tells us a lot about who Job is. And the Hebrew word used to describe Job is Tom. It's this really complex, beautiful, rich word, like a lot of Hebrew words are, um, filled with meaning. And it means this. It means that Job was innocent. He was shaped by personal integrity. He was whole or without blemish. Um, he was just, and not only that, he practiced justice in his life, and so he was exemplary. He was authentic. So some of our students, you might use this language more than our adults do, but it's almost like when Satan was walking around, hanging out, talking to God, it's almost like God said, have you considered my servant Job? He's the goat. When it comes to faith, he's the greatest of all time. And he didn't gloat like that by any means, but he's exemplary. And so here's the thing that the Satan does. Is he questions Job's motives. So based on the theology of the day, if you think about it like this, poverty and sickness were punishments for sins of the individual or the family. At least that's what they thought. And so you get into Job chapter 1. Go ahead and stay there. We're, gonna, we're not going to read this entire, this entire dialogue again, but I want you to kind of get back into the space. The Satan answered the Lord and said, does, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and, and his possessions have increased in the land. But I'll tell you what, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. With his mouth, his speech, he will curse you. And so, um, taps into this religious view of the day. It says the only reason Job is exemplary is because of all the stuff that you've given him. Take it away. Take it away and see how deep his faith actually runs. 
And so we learned this a little bit later, too, about his friends. They, have, they, they carry the same view. Um, but God trusts Job, so he says, okay. He says, let's do this wager. So Job loses everything. But look at Job 1, 20 through 22. Um, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground that he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But check this out. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So, Satan wasn't satisfied. Come back with the uh, wager part two. Let's crank it up a little bit, he says. Let's take away more than just his possessions. Let's touch him. And so this is Job chapter 2, 4 through 6. The Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. And so we find out that Job's inflicted with sores. The next time we see him, he's scraping wounds. And as Leslie pointed out last week, he's unrecognizable to his friends. But then you get to Job chapter 2, 9. He says, then his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to that integrity thing? All that stuff that the author just pointed out, do you still hold fast to that? Curse God with your mouth and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's about speech. How did Job talk about God or to God with his speech? We know that he didn't curse God. But here's the thing that his circumstance led him to do. It made him wonder, like, where on earth? If this God is really real... This God that I've invested my life in, then where is God in this chaos and all this mess that's happening? And it's a question we ask, right? Um, this picture is a picture of my mom's hand and my sister's hands and my hand um, a year ago. And on this particular day, when this picture, my, my sister just pulled out her phone and she just snuck a pic. This particular night, we had received the phone call that we had been dreading. That my mom had pancreatic cancer. And we were ticked off. We knew that's probably what it was. But we didn't know until the phone call. And so this night, this moment, we were just simply sitting on the couch with my mom, just praying with her. And I'll tell you this, we learned a lot about my mom's speech that night. We heard things from her that we had never heard before. But it's after this night when I left... I mean, I was angry. I wept and cried all the way home from Murfreesboro to Gallatin. It was just the first of many of those nights like that. But after this night, we began making plans. We kind of had a family meeting. We began making plans about who would sit with my mom during the day and who would be with her at night. 
because we didn't know how long this thing was going to, we didn't know how long she was going to endure this. This is Sunday of last year, this day. And so Jennifer, my wife, stayed with my mom Sunday night and hung out with her all day Monday until I could get there. And I stayed the night with my mom Monday night and stayed there through Tuesday until my sister could come and take over. And then I left to come home. And about three hours later, I got a phone call from my sister that my mom had collapsed and that they were rushing her to the ER. That's Tuesday. So I rushed down there, and I had never seen my mom in such pain in my entire life. In fact, you have to know my mom. Jamie knows my mom. Some of you may have met my mom, but my mom is this precious little soul, right? I'm sure that everybody thinks that about their mom, right? But I hope so. Um, my mom was reeling in pain, but she was apologizing to us. That's what moms do, right? She's apologizing to us because of the pain that she's putting us in. And it hurt. And we were angry. She would end up getting a, a normal room a little bit later. She stabilized. Long night that night. And we continued to stay angry, it seemed like, that night. But some understanding was coming about us because we, we, we knew the potential of what she was facing. And her prayers had shifted, quite honestly. There's this peace that came over her that I still don't know how to quite understand. And this okayness with the th circumstances. And that following Wednesday, things went down really fast. And her body, this, this illness took a toll on her body pretty quickly. And later that evening after we consulted with the doctors, they basically came in and said that her blood pressure medicine was the only thing that was sustaining her at the time. But they needed to keep her comfortable. And so we sat there with her. And at some point, she kind of drifted off into um, unconsciousness. But uh, we sat there, my sister turned on her phone, and we, we played worship music that my mother loved. And we sat around her bed with family, and we worshipped. We whispered our goodbyes. And we sat with her until she passed. And we were angry. But also overwhelmed with joy for the pain that she was no longer enduring. And we stayed in that room for a long time. We grieved. We were bewildered. We were perplexed. We were incapable of grasping how on earth so quickly things had passed, and we continued to sit there and ask questions. We're now drained. We're emotionally and physically fatigued, and there were just no answers. No answers to the entire thing, and uh, that's kind of where we were this time last year, right? This is a picture that I guarantee you most of you have not seen. <laughs> Back up a little bit longer. This is my dad. And this is, this is me with Reagan's hair about two weeks ago. And this is my son, Jack. This is almost 21 years ago. Uh, 
my dad had preached on Sunday, and Jack had been born that Monday, and he couldn't be there. I'm trying to get all this together in my head, babe, and he, he couldn't be there today because he was preaching, but he came in on Monday, and we hung out, and we had lunch, and he got to see Jack and the whole bit, and this, is the, uh, this was a wild day. Uh, and then four hours later, I got another phone call that my dad had just died from a massive heart attack. And I dropped the phone, and all I remember is putting my fist through my daughter's door, clean through it. And that anger was different. It was immediate. So there were different angers. Like one, we had this time to process and think through, and the other one was so palpable that it, was, it manifested on the spot, and I had never felt like that in my entire life. And it was livid, and it just hit me like a wrecking ball. It hit all of us like a wrecking ball. We didn't have time to think through any of it. But anyways, I just want, and here's the thing, I am not standing here in front of you claiming to you my mother's righteousness, and I, you know me, I'm not standing here claiming my righteousness in any way, shape, or form, okay? I'm as broken as anybody else is. I also know that I am not the only one who has circumstances like this, and I know for sure that there are people in this room right now, in the midst of us right now, who are hurting and you have lost loved ones, or you are losing loved ones, or you have heard news that has just blown you away, or you are waiting on news. And it may not be just a loss. It may not just be death. It could be a number of different things. But you are experiencing unexplainable suffering, and it varies. And you're sitting there wondering, why on earth does God feel so distant? And he's nowhere to be found, and I don't get any of it. Maybe you've been there, and if you haven't, I doubt it, but maybe you have. And we keep asking the questions like Job did, why? Why did you allow this? Why didn't you prevent that? Where are you? When will you stop this? Why won't you answer me? How long? Which is the psalm that you just read, Tom. How long are you going to hide your face from me? And so here's, if, if you, again, I say this every now and then, but if you don't hear anything else that I say, hear this. You are not alone in any of these circumstances that we're talking about. You are not alone. And it seems like that at times. But do not allow the evil one to isolate you into that falsehood. Job was disoriented. He was angry. And when he finally opened his mouth, I don't know how much we got into this last week, Leslie. When Job finally opened his mouth in Job 3, I'm going to read this to you. I'm not going to read much of it. I want you to hear this from the message version. This is what he says. Then Job broke silence and opened his mouth and cursed his fate. Obliterate the day that I was born. Obliterate it. Blank out the night that I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget that it ever happened. Just erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by fog, swallowed by the night. And the night of my conception, the devil take it. Rip the date off the calendar. Delete it from the almanac. Eugene Peterson translates. Job was angry. But he didn't curse God. But he's not alone. I want you to know that. When you look at scripture, you don't have have to take all these notes down. You probably have understood this in general. But these are also people who are angry at God at one point or other. Moses, Jeremiah, Gideon, two-thirds of the Psalms. You can look through it and see where Moses was so ticked off at God because of the people of Israel. Jeremiah sounds a lot like Job in this particular text. And he says, curse the day I was born. Curse it. Why did I even come out of the womb? He said, 
Gideon, I love this. He says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if you're with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are you? And then you get into the Psalms. Two-thirds of the Psalms are lament Psalms. And here in just a little bit, we're going to actually sing Psalm 42. Deep calls out to deep, and the message in it is, Lord, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? And so we get into this process. We find ourselves in these situations that seem overwhelming, and we don't know how to do it. Um, if you've met with Brian Shepherd ever, ever, Jack Brian Shepherd ever in the midst of grieving, he'll tell you that there is a process that we go through in any kind of grieving. And this is the way that uh, Kubler-Ross would describe it in human terms, that there's these stages of grief that we go through from shock and denial to anger to extreme sadness to bargaining and acceptance. Um, I don't know where you might be in this, but anger is a very big part of this. It's a part of what we go through. No matter what your individual circumstances are, you're going to find yourself in this place. And what I want to say is this. It's proper to be angry. If you've never heard this before, I want you to hear this. It is okay to express your utmost honest, unfiltered emotions to God. Because here's the thing. He already knows them. Psalm 139, he already knows what you're going to say before you say it. So while you're wrestling and contending with pain and difficulties... God understands. He is fully aware. So here's what I want you to do. Think back to just a few weeks ago when we talked about the promises of God. Jesus said, I am going to be with you until the end of the age. He also said, go wait in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is going to come and it's going to be with you. And you're going to have a helper. And he also said, at some point in time, I'm coming back to fix all of this. But the problem is you and I are living in that in-between time. And we're wondering when the Lord is going to do what he said he was going to do. And while we wait, we experience all these catastrophes and suffering and these things that look like chaos, and they are. And at some point, Jesus will return and absolutely obliterate, to use that same language, all suffering. And it will all be gone. And so you and I wait. And we wait with confidence. And we wait with anticipation and excitement. And, and we don't sit idly. That's the thing I want to say to you. We don't sit purposelessly, purposely purposelessly how's that but we wait by participating in the kingdom now and you may be sitting there going what on earth does any of that have to do with suffering and my answer to you is everything because while you and i wait here one of the things that suffering does to us when we are suffering is that we recognize others so eventually our suffering enhances our attentiveness and awareness of others who are suffering this is the key part we notice others. And then we have a role to play because of that. So you and I have no choice, but we are to take responsible action with our words and our deeds when it comes to suffering. So the first thing we do is we lament. You and I are not just have permission, but we're invited to raise our voices in protest to the one who created us. And in doing so, you and I model how to talk to and about God in the midst of suffering to a culture around us. So the first thing is we lament. When we're suffering. God hears our voices. But that's just the beginning. The second thing we do is we don't run away from suffering. We respond to it. We don't look for suffering. I'm not telling you to leave this room and go find darkness. Go plunge yourself into something really disappointing today. Go get disoriented. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when, when suffering does exist, we don't run from it. We respond to it. And we see trials and suffering as opportunities and occasions for the work of God's grace, 
love, and compassion and courage in this lifetime. So you lament, and then we run into suffering to help others when it's time to do so. And we ask this question. I'm convinced this is what the early church did. Who is the most vulnerable and in need, and what can we do? That's the church's role in suffering. We respond. We look for helpers. We collaborate. And sometimes we just sit with people. And that's enough. Matter of fact, (laughs) if Job's friends had just done what they did at the very beginning, the book of Job wouldn't be as long as it is. It'd be like five chapters and we're done. But you had to have that because that's the reality, right? And so here's what they did. They had this thing called sitting Shiva. It's this practice that Jewish culture has now because of what Job's friends did with him then. And they sit on boxes or on little stools and they get really low with the person who has just had an extreme loss to experience what they're going through. And for seven days, they mourn with that person. And if Job's friends had just stayed in that space... Everything would have been fine for them. But the problem began when they opened their mouth. (laughs) Miss Junior's smirking at me. Because my wife has often told me, (laughs) we'll be in arguments and she'll say, you know, everything you said was fine until you said that. (laughs) If you just not said that, (laughs) we'd be fine. Sometimes we get in trouble when we open our mouths. Right? They sat with Job. So listen carefully how the end of Job, the, the book Job ends. This is 42, 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord. This is after God had said everything to Job. Then the, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel with not, without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Watch how this ends up. This is 42 through 7, okay? After the Lord had spoken all these words to Job, he turns to Eliphaz, who's the ringleader of all these friends. By the way, Elihu never even gets mentioned again, okay? It's like we just delete his dialogue out 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 of there. But he says to Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and against your two friends for the way you have, what's that? I messed it up there. My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. You didn't speak right of me. Job did. So my anger burns with you. And then Job 42.8, he says it again. <laughs> he says it twice to him. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. <laughs> God never condemns the way Job speaks to him in the entire book of Job. Not once. He doesn't condemn us for being angry and upset at the things that are happening in our world. But our speech matters. Jesus never lectured broken people. Do you know this? Think about that for a second. Jesus never lectured the broken, the blind, or the bleeding and said it's all part of God's will. He never said such a thing. But listen to this. This is the message version of John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God knew what kind of world he was sending Jesus into. And that world is this. Jesus is on the same side of those who have suffered. He joins us in the brokenness of humanity and we experience God through him. Listen to what this one author has to say about how God works in all this. 
for whatever reason, God has chosen to respond to the human predicament not by waving a magic wand to prevent or make evil or suffering disappear, but by absorbing it in person. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling place among us. Jesus reaches out to humanity and touches it, interacts with it, heals it, loves it, eventually is crucified for it and resurrected, defeating death once and for all, and that's part of what we do. We step into that same space with Jesus. So from disorientation to orientation, God is with us. And here's what I assume. I assume that probably someone either in here today or maybe someone just hearing us today is wondering where God is. Where is he in your suffering? My guess is that's, that's the reality for a lot of us. And there may be some of you in here that are wanting to put Jesus on in baptism and that's part of the call that you have in your heart and that's awesome and we will be happy to participate in that baptism with you. But my hunch is this, and I don't, I don't know how all churches do this because I'm not, I, don't, I don't get to go to many other churches on Sundays, you know. Um, I don't know how every tradition does this, where they are, but I, my guess is, is that one of the best things that we could do as a church community is create a safe culture so that people, when they are hurting and in these places, they know where to go. And so you may not, maybe it's not that you want to put Jesus on in baptism. Maybe you have already done that, but now you're wondering, where is he in the midst of whatever it is you're going through? This song we're going to sing right now is really powerful. And if you just need someone to sit with you, if you just need someone to sit with you today, if you just need to look at somebody else in this space and say, I'm really ticked off at my circumstances, and I'm, I'm really, I don't even know how to articulate this to God, then I would hope that this is a place where you can do that. I would hope that. So if you're in that place, if you're wanting to put Jesus on in baptism, come with us as we stand and sing.